0: All right, good morning, everyone. Well, this is a uh, powerful text that is before us this morning. Uh, Just my upfront confession is there's so much here that uh, I would like to unpack, and we're going to focus ourselves on the theme of progress by the Spirit. Progress by the Spirit. Uh, Yesterday, I had the privilege of going to my uh, nephew's wedding, I think he's kind of my namesake. His name name is Luke Timothy. And uh, Luke and Angelica are a well-matched couple. The day was, uh, as Angelica would do it, uh, meticulously planned, except that it was an outside wedding and an outside reception. I just looked at my shoes, I said to Doug, I said, I've left dirt on the floor. (laughs) So if you see dirt on my shoes when I walk around, just you can get out of your mind what I was doing. I was at a wedding last night, all right? And it was quite muddy. I was actually, I couldn't stick around long enough to see if people were even able to get out of my dad's uh, backfield. I was entertaining some interesting thoughts about that as I was leaving. Well, in spite of the weather yesterday, it was a day that was full of beauty of joys, of dreams, of hopes, and of promises to always, to never, to only you. Just as you would like it to be, and the thought would be, this will move on happily ever after. It always works out that way, right? It's painful for us to think about our bad days, too frequent and too common. How often have you been surprised by your own behavior, your own reactions, your own words, particularly to those with whom you are in close relationship with? It happens in all areas of life. It happens in the area of marriage. It happens in the area of parenting. It happens with extended family. It happens at work. It happens at school. It happens with sports teams. It happens in politics. There's a shocker. It happens in traffic. It happens in line at the grocery store. It happens at rest stops on the Garden State Expressway. It happens at athletic events. It happens at concerts. That's why those events are typically surrounded by something called security, right? Because people are basically good. Now, those things are true because humanity has a problem. You know, I often hear people say, well, I hate when things get political. Well, politics is people. The problem is a human problem. The problem is a common problem. It is our problem. I haven't watched the show, but I've been caught by the title of it, a TV show called This Is Us. Right? And I thought to myself, how true. This is us. This is us, people that are broken, people in need of guidance, people in need of God's direction, people in need of transformation, in need of, as Sandy prayed this morning, confession and forgiveness and and hope and renewal. That's who we are. And in this text that is before us, you know, Paul's going to speak in a way that will, at one level, prompt relief, right? I mean, when I, when I understand that we all have a problem, there's something about that that makes me feel better. There's something about someone confessing to me their struggle that makes me feel not isolated and alone in my sin. Does that make sense? I believe it's why we're to confess our faults to one another, holding each other accountable, giving each other hope that God can get you through your struggle. The struggle is deep. It's strong. You're not the only one with a problem. We all struggle. We all wrestle to be what God, by His grace in the Spirit, has called us to be. A common problem, and we need a common Savior. Lurking in the background of this text and our lives is a dream killer. An ongoing struggle which unchecked kills our longings and our hopes. And often leaves us sitting on a heap of relational rubbish, where hope is deferred, dreams unrealized, and hearts sick. That's us. And all of us, I think, can be honest and say, I have at times in my life been in that place. And the real question that I have is, is there hope? Can we really experience lasting change? Sometimes as pastors, you kind of you wrestle through that week in and week out singing and worshiping God and teaching the Word of God and longing and hoping for this truth to catch, to take hold in people's lives. And the question that we have to wrestle with is, how is that going to happen? How is that lasting change, substantive, measurable, observable change going to come in the life of the body of Christ? You know, in this text, verses 14 and 15, Galatians uh, 5, if you want to turn there real quick if I didn't tell you that already. Galatians 5. I'm assuming that since we're moving through, you kind of know where we are. Galatians 5, verses 14 and 15, the text that Doug ended with last week. Paul raises a needed warning on the road, road of life. A warning sign, a caution, a flashing sign to capture our attention and to protect us. He says, you, my brothers, have been called to be free from the law's demand, but do not use your freedom to indulge yourself. In other words, the fact that you are free from obedience as any thought of means to salvation, since that has been annihilated from your mind, don't drift into license. Don't drift into freedom from God's directives. Don't ignore the boundaries that God has established in his law. They are there for your benefit. To show you what Jesus Christ is really like and to help guide and control your life. Paul says in verse 15, If you keep on biting and devouring, be careful or you will be destroyed by one another. And as I read that and as I look at human history, I believe that is a true and real possibility. There are events that are shocking. If you just follow a little bit with what's going on in your country and other countries on the news, there are events that are devastating, that tear at your heart, that kill hope, and that make you wonder if progress is possible in your own life. Well, the question is, what is the remedy to this common problem that we all have? How do I live in a substantive way differently And what Paul's going to do in this text, having argued the truth of the gospel and the transformation that comes by the free grace of God, apart from the law, through the work of God, through his son, Jesus Christ, Paul's been arguing that. And what he's going to do now is shift from deep biblical theology to what we would call in many times practical theology or truth that relates to Christian character. Truth that begins to govern and affect, okay, I'm free from that. But now what do I do? How do I live in a way that can please God and cause us as a church to be the salt and light company that God has called us to be for a watching world around us? And so this text is going to paint portraits, two portraits. One portrait repulses, causes you to step back. The other is attractive and beautiful. And the Spirit of God comes to make the church beautiful and attractive and transformational where she lives in this community. For the glory and honor of his name. Paul moves now from gospel truth to gospel character and transformation. This is practical truth where the rubber meets the road of life. The theme of growth and progress in character and relationships permeates the text. But often does not permeate our lives. I want you to look at verse 16 as Paul begins to address this previously stated problem of biting and devouring and ultimately destroying each other. In light of that, verse 16 starts with, uh, my translation says, so I say, all right, or uh, therefore, in light of what I've just stated, this incredible possibility of self-destroying churches and people, Paul says, so I say, in light of that natural tendency, walk by the Spirit and you, and I love this promise, You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, but the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you like. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So this paragraph introduces this uh, topic of transformation. And what this text does is it, it first shares a solution, and then it's going to delve into the problem that we all have. So interestingly, Paul says, here's the solution to this devastating tendency that we have to bite, devour, tear, and destroy. Okay, and it's very simple. Paul says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, there's an assumption in this text, in this counsel that Paul is giving. The assumption is that the Holy Spirit is present in each believer. That's an assumption that Paul is making as he speaks to the body of Christ. You have an internal compass. God, by the Spirit, has taken up residence in the life of every true believer in Christ. So he is present in each believer. And as I thought back through the book of Galatians, you think of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2 where it says that that you receive the Spirit by believing Okay, that when you came to faith in Christ, the Spirit of God miraculously took up residence or presence in your life. And then chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, Because you are sons of God, He has sent forth His Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So what is Spirit doing? He is indwelling, and He is assuring or affirming that those who have trusted Christ have begun to experience a deep, personal relationship with God that is talked about in terms of childhood or paternity. You're in a close relationship with God. He has taken a presence in you, and then I think I, could, I can make the next assumption that Paul is pushing at is, and that is this, that the Spirit of God is present and active in your life, that He's not there because He needed a place to stay. He's there because you and I have a need for his daily work, active and guiding, revealing and shaping Christ in us. And that's, I think if you were to study through the New Testament and say, what is the ministry of the Spirit of God? I think I could summarize it in this, based on the Gospel of John 14 to 16, and then most of the texts where Paul is speaking. That the ministry of the Spirit is to reveal and exalt Christ, to make him glorious, clear and attractive. And then his second work is to shape that person, Jesus, into your life. So he reveals Christ to us in an exalting way that attracts us. And then he miraculously begins to shape us into the very image and likeness of Jesus. So that's the assumption of the text. He is present and in his presence he is active and working to overcome the struggle that is common in humanity. That gives me hope. Salvation is from God. That's what this text has argued so far. The second thing it's going to argue is that sanctification or progress in Christ's likeness is owing to the work of the Spirit. So Paul will later say, I think in another uh, one of his epistles, he says, Having begun in the Spirit, will you now become complete by personal effort or flesh? And his argument is this. You're being brought into God's family and your progress in Christ's likeness is all of God. And, and I, I make one contribution, and the contribution I make is one of surrender. And, and that's where this text is going. The problem stated very clearly, you bite and devour and ultimately destroy. That's what we do on our own. But the Spirit of God comes to check that natural tendency, to confront it and to go into conflict and battle with it, to destroy it, to subdue it, and to transform us. Right? That's what the Spirit of God comes to do. I would argue that his presence is, in that sense, hopeful. So can I change? No. Can I change by the Spirit? Yes. Yes. My hope is not in my flesh. I've been a Christian long enough to know that my hope is in the Lord. And in the personal presence of the Spirit of God to do what he has been called by God to do. Here's the promise that this text gives you. As Paul identifies the solution, he gives you a promise. He says, walk by the Spirit. You want to keep from devouring and destroying and hurting the people that are closest to you. Your mates, your kids, your co-workers, your neighbors. Do you want to stop? I think all of us would say, yeah. Yeah. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Get in sync with what God is doing in your life. And when I cave into the desires of the flesh that are destructive and hurtful and devouring, that's hopeful to me. Folks, listen what God calls us to requires a degree of discipline and, 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 and fortitude and conviction, but ultimately it's about surrendering. My analogy for this that I always use is when I go to the dentist, I don't anticipate that I'm going to make any contribution to the effectiveness of that dentist work the only thing i'm going to do is when he says ah i'm going to open my mouth and i will i'll spare you that illustration okay that's all i do is surrender a couple weeks i have a procedure i have to go for all i'm going to do is surrender to the doctor do what you got to do okay I, i don't make any contribution but i can come to the appointment that's the christian life we go to God and say, God, fight in me by your spirit, work in me by your spirit, change me by your spirit. I surrender. And this is the daily struggle. It's why the Apostle Paul says, I die daily. It's why Jesus says, Take up your cross daily. Right? That I need to die so Christ can live. That's the picture of this text. This is a long walk in the Christian life that Paul is talking about here. Keep in step with implies over the long term of your Christian experience as a habit, as a characteristic of life. He is not calling us to an episode. He is not calling us to a spiritual circumstance or event that ultimately changes us. He's calling us to a a continual walk of surrender. So don't seek an event. Seek a life with God. Seek to walk with God daily. That's what sanctification is. And that's how it begins to work out in our lives. Walking by the Spirit is to be a habit of the Christian life. Speaks of relationship with God. It speaks of listening to an advisor or a coach as he seeks to tweak and to guide. And to give direction and instruction as to how to live and what to avoid and how we can become the people that God wants us to be. You know I, I'll give you an illustration of this, and I think I might have shared this at some point along the way. but right, I have a friend in Allentown. His name is Chris Pannicterra. He owns a company called Keystone Property Management and Maintenance. I'll send him this this so he can know he got advertised in church. Okay? Now, Chris is a consummate mechanical technician, OK it, He knows everything that I've, I've ever asked him about plumbing. About electrical, about construction, about heating and air conditioning. And I can go on and on. All the things that I wish because of certain circumstances in my life that I knew and had limitless knowledge in. I I get into circumstances on a regular basis where I have to tap out. I I don't know what to do. But I have something called a cell phone and I have something called FaceTime. And what I do is I FaceTime my friend who is so incredibly busy, it embarrasses me that he even picks up the phone. But he does. And I call Chris Ponectera and I say, Chris, I'm having a problem with this four-way switch. Now, a four-way switch is incredibly complicated. It's when you get into three or four or more switches on your light circuit. Okay, single pole, I understand that. Three-way, I'm okay with that. But when you get into this complicated realm of electricity, it gets dangerous and shocking. So I'll call my friend Chris, and all of a sudden, I find myself bringing a solution to a problem that I didn't know the answer to. I didn't know what to do. I was was left ignorant. But I call Chris, and all of a sudden, the four-way switch is working. So I hang up, and I call my wife and say, I got the four-way switch working. No. No, you know what I say? came to mind to call my friend Chris. I called Chris. He guided me through that problem and made me something that I could never be on my own. An electrician who didn't get shocked that day. He, that, that's, folks, listen. God, by the Spirit, takes up residence to speak and to guide, to prompt, to move, to convict, so that you will listen and become everything that God wants you to be by His Spirit. And when that happens, there isn't pride in the life of a growing Christian. There is a deepening level and sense of humility because you understand that you have moved in and been effective in territory in which you are utterly incompetent and ignorant. But God is at work. And that is one of the fountainheads of worship. When change and transformation starts to manifest itself in your life, when God uses you to do something effectively that you feared or knew you couldn't do or was beyond your capability, and God works, you say, praise God, right? So the Spirit of God comes, and if you yield to him, he'll change your life. It's that simple. And we could just say amen and go home, right? But this text also reveals the believer's struggle. Paul is so abundantly honest in this text, so clear about the nature of the battle within. I'm not going to drift into all of the theological nuances of it. I just want you to go away today understanding there is a battle within which threatens to cause me to be a verbal destroyer of those around me but the Spirit of God has come to restrain those kinds of desires, those lusts, those apathies, all the... He has come to restrain and destroy those things so that I become a Christ-like person. That's his ministry and work. So here's what Paul says. Walk by the Spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For this is the reason for that statement, the struggle. The flesh... And one writer calls this my sinful self-interest. I, only, I, I, I love that definition because it puts me at the center of the problem. See, at the center of most of my conflicts is me. Me wanting what I want. And so we fight and we destroy. This is what James 4 says, right? Where do wars and fightings come from among you? James preached on this last year. The problem is you. The problem is me. The Spirit of God comes to confront me, not my wife. It comes to change me, not my kids. It comes to transform my perspective, not my neighbor's. It comes to give clarity in the struggle with the brother or sister in Christ so that he'll be glorified. This is his aim. So Paul says, here's why I tell you to walk by the Spirit, to be in tune with and in step with every day with what God is doing. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. My sinful self-interest wants things that God forbids It wants to fight back. I got upset driving to church this morning because I was a little late, and the guy in front of me was going like forty miles an hour, and I realized I realized this is a guy that i 've witnessed to, so Pennsylvania place on a white DuraMax truck, and I'm like, "Oh crap, what was I thinking?" I'm just telling you, man, I, it, you can ask my wife. If I'm one thing, I'm impulsive. And it's not always pretty. Okay, I like to think about the times when, boy, it's good I'm impulsive. <laughs> my wife will help you understand better. I have two natures. There is an internal struggle. Uh, one writer called it my lower nature, or the Paul uses the term the old man and the new man. I have two natures, and they are in a decided conflict or battle with each other between what I want and what God wants. It's the best way I think I can say it. Flesh versus spirit or what I want versus what the Spirit of God is prompting and declaring in my life. Flesh promotes self-centered living. And the Spirit of God promotes righteousness and relational health. The Spirit of God longs to exalt Christ. And shape Christ in me, but my flesh has a longing as well. This is the this is the struggle that you go through in your Christian experience. This is the, the battle part of it. You know, I, I heard a pastor say years ago, talking to an Indian about his an Indian about his struggle. And he the Indian used the illustration of two dogs inside that this internal conflict that he was describing from a human perspective, the the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. And and the question to him was, well, which one wins the battle? He said, the one I feed the most wins the battle. How do I feed the spirit? I, I know that I don't sustain him, but the way I respond is to yield, to surrender, to say yes on a repeated, regular basis as he prompts and speaks and directs and brings the word of God to clarity and shows me more about Jesus and says, not this, that. My flesh doesn't say, okay, great. No, I have to get in battle mode and begin to step out and walk in the right direction, trusting that God can overcome my hopelessness and defeatedness and cause me in Christ to be by the spirit victorious. This is what he aims to do. So they are in a pitted battle. So that's the problem. That's why I tend to revel in a little gossip or negative talk. My flesh likes that stuff. The Spirit of God is saying, no, this. This is sinful. This is loving. There's a pitted battle. And we all go through this. Paul says, but if you were led by the Spirit... You are not under the tyranny of the law. I am not obligated by duty as a Christian to keep God's law or by regulation. I am driven by new affections, driven by the Spirit, which replace the old way of life and lead to a new me, a transformed me, a higher me rather than a lower me by the Spirit. That's what God is doing. He wants to destroy my selfish tendencies and replace them with other centered tendencies. I uh, Trust me, I, I, I guarantee you in your personal life, you experience that struggle with wanting to take care of yourself and yours as opposed to them and theirs. And the Spirit of God is constantly saying, serve, love, obey. Ultimately, a believer wants... God and his will. He is freed from the tyranny of the law that condemns by the righteousness of Christ and is empowered by the spirit to live as salt and light. And So Paul says, be led by the spirit each day as you step out the door of your house, begin to say, God, show me how you want me to live today. Show me how I can best honor you. Now, what happens next in the text So we identify the solution, be led by the Spirit. The problem, there's an internal battle, a pitted battle, in which I lose in my flesh. But by the Spirit, I can be victorious. Okay, so that's where hope emerges. What's the outcome of this battle? If I lean towards sinful self-interest, how do I begin to look? I'm going to tell you how you begin to look. You look repulsive and unattractive. That's how I look. Sometimes that's why we don't like looking in the mirror. Because... When you look at a picture of yourself, you're not typically I am, I am not struck with my personal beauty. Okay, so I don't linger long on the thought of, wow, it's a nice picture of you. Okay. I tend to think about myself. About my real me. And whether it is surrender to the Spirit or following the flesh, that's the battle I have. And Paul. Here it paints two pictures, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't know how to handle this. I have it in a paraphrase to read to you, and I have the text before us. I think for the sake of time, I'm going to read the text before us. And what I want you to, to do is you look at this, I want you to see what you can do, and I hope you're repulsed by it, and I want you to see what the Spirit of God can do, and I hope you're attracted to it. So that the world around you begins to see the salt and light that God designed and intended for each of us to be. And so Paul says, and, 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 and the reason I think Paul gives the picture of the flesh, this portrait, is to cause you to say this. And I think the reason he gives you the other picture of the fruit of the Spirit is to cause you to say, I want that. I think what he's doing is he's appealing to a true believer who has the Spirit of God, who when they see things in their life emerging, they want distance from it, they want to repent of it and turn from it. And when they begin to see the things that God can do in their life, they're attracted to that. There's something about it that they long for. And also something that the world so desperately needs to see. So verse 19, if you yield to the flesh, he says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious. When you yield to your self-interest, sinful, here's what you desire. Sexual immorality impurity, debauchery, all of these, by the way, are sexual categories of which our culture is frauds, idolatry, witchcraft, I think it's just simply the work of Satan, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I think Paul finally taps out, he says, wow, there's a whole list of other things just like that. And when you read that, I don't think the average dad is saying, i got to find that guy for my daughter. I think the average dad is saying, I hope my daughter does not meet someone like that. But I think Paul's also pointing to something else. Two tendencies that emerge in the life of every. Individual with a sinful self-nature, selfish nature. I think he's calling us to be careful. I think it's in the context of warning. So I tell you, listen, follow. Don't go down this road. The result of it is devastating and destroying. Like there's strong warning that emerges here. In verse 21, Paul makes an interesting statement. He says and the like, which I think is just broadening the categories. He says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now folks, here's what I very simply think Paul is saying. If those attributes are fine with you and characteristic of your life, then you need to do serious thought before God about your status with him. Whether you're truly someone who has experienced the power of God. Does Do most believers at times experience some of these struggles? I think the answer is yes. That's the pitted battle. But a believer doesn't yield to those things. A believer yields to the Spirit. And that leads to a distinguishing difference in his life that is manifested in the text that follows. Verse 22, Paul says this. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit. And and I I think this sets up in contrast with the fruits of the flesh first, leading to the fruits of the Spirit. Second, with the word but, which creates a a hope, a sense of I want to see a different portrait. I want to be a different, I want to see a different picture, I want to be a different person. And so Paul moves into this beautiful description of characteristics produced by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Folks, can I Can I just, I want to take one pastoral pause. Doug said this last week. I like that, Doug. A pastoral pause is this The evidence of the work of the Spirit in the New Testament is always the fruit of the Spirit. Always. It's not spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians tells us what? Are not necessarily evidence of God at work, but the fruit of the Spirit is always proof of God at work. Okay, so let's say this to you. Let God do what he's doing in your life, but be careful what you seek and long for in, in this realm. Okay, not that we shouldn't long for the works of the Spirit, understand, earnestly desire, them. we should, but never as much as we desire character transformation through which those gifts will be manifested. Because the problem in Corinth is that spiritual gifts were promoting pride, which is a sin of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit will allow those spiritual gifts to be set in a context in which they are beautiful and powerful and never selfish in expression. The ro- result of surrender is what then? I think in this context, the result of surrender is progress in Christ's likeness. It's, it's more and more of the fruit of the Spirit is being manifested in my life. It's becoming visible. That's the work of God. The Spirit changes our essential character, the essential you, the essential us, so that the world around us begins to see a church that is being transformed as it yields. So that's why I think in Romans 12, Paul's on the same track. I urge you, brothers, in light of God's mercy, the theology of the gospel, give yourselves to God as an acceptable and willing sacrifice and watch what he does by the Spirit in your life. It's beautiful. It begins to change our desires, which changes our behavior and causes the world to say, I want to know what they know. I want to know who they know as the new you or the new us emerges and attracts the attention of a world that so desperately needs to see the second portrait. Here's the way I thought of it as I drove here this morning. The first portrait repulses, the second portrait attracts. So I would do this. I can only do it one more time. I would pray that my daughter would find someone like that, even if he doesn't like the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> I could live with it, okay? This is the essential stuff. This is the stuff that matters when you're raising kids. These are the truths that matter when you're in marriage. These are the truths that matter in the workplace. These are the truths that matter when there's a conflict with your neighbor. The Spirit of God speaking and you saying, I was going to say this. And he's saying, what were you thinking? I wasn't. And he says, do this. And you begin to yield to the truth that you know as he brings it to mind. As you think about the character and nature of Christ, you begin to ask questions like, what would Jesus do? I'd rather you ask this question. What did he do? Let the Spirit of God bring that to mind and change your life for good. Now, here's what I believe. So there's a solution, yield to the Spirit. There's a battle, a fight inside of me for what's good and for what's bad. And as I yield to the Spirit, the good thing begins to emerge. Good character, attractiveness, beauty, loving Christ, loving others. It starts to rise. What then is surrender? What is yielding to the Spirit? Three statements are used. Be led by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and what's the third one? Walk, be led, and... Uh, I could look at... Uh, live by the Spirit. Okay. It's a fascinating term, isn't it? Live by the Spirit. Be animated by this, this work of God. What then is yielding? What is it when I say yes? Here's what I believe. I believe yielding and surrendering daily to the Spirit's direction is hopeful fighting... For righteousness. Yielding to the Spirit of God. Walking by the Spirit of God is hope-filled fighting for righteousness. It's how I resist my flesh. I say yes to God by the Spirit. And He begins to do in me things that I can't do on my own. And people around me begin to say, I didn't see that coming. Here's the way I think it works. Your response to a circumstance is different than what would be typical. And in that moment, there's this flash that God is, there's hope for me. As I begin perpetually and consistently yielding to the Spirit, there's hope that God can change me. That's what Paul's promising. Here's how I fight against the flesh and those natural tendencies. I say yes to God. And he begins to work in amazing, powerful, and glorious ways. And a watching world will not miss this beautiful transformation. So, why does Paul call it the fruit of the Spirit? And I'll just answer this question in four ways. This is borrowed from various studies. Because fruit is a manifestation of essential character. Here's why I believe, here's what I believe. I believe that every Christian will manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Every believer. Because the Spirit of God comes to do an effective work. And here's the way fruit grows. First thing you notice about fruit is I've done gardening, I've dug up the seeds to see if they're opening, okay? Because I'm impatient. You know what you learn about fruit? The growth of fruit is gradual, but undeniable. I hope that gives you hope. You know what I think one of the most devastating things we do is we compare ourselves to other believers. Instead of the Christ. We do it all the time. Betty Friese used to say to me. This woman I love. But I i bet she would compare herself to other people. And I said Betty stop. You're one of the most. Wonderful examples of a. Christ like person. I've ever met. But when you compare yourself to others. You destroy your joy. You destroy your hope for change. Because God comes to. Do something in us by the Spirit that is inevitable. You know what a tree is, not by what people tell you. You know what a tree is by the fruit that grows on it, not by the fruit that is attached to it, but by the fruit that grows on it. And that growth is always progressive. This is the way the Spirit of God works. He doesn't come to. <laughs> To to make you something absolutely contrary to what you have always always been. He comes to work in a process of transformation in your life. Starts with new birth. Usually with, with some heightened sense of change. And then you realize, oh my gosh, I'm in a battle. And I need to walk by the Spirit of God. Because he comes to reveal Christ and to shape Christ in me. Fruit also has this. It has internal roots. It starts inside and appears outside. You know, a tree without roots is dead and bears no fruit. The part you can't see becomes the most important. Folks, listen. The Spirit of God comes to change you inside your affections and desires. And then all of a sudden, that starts to appear in your marriage. That starts to appear in your parenting. That starts to appear in your workplace. And people start to take notice of someone close to me in my personal life who? Not because they're outstanding and extraordinary. They're not. They're basic, simple, but faithful. And people at work make comments that they notice. That gives me hope, man. An average person surrendered to God, making an incredible difference, and making Christ attractive, and making people want to know. What do you know? Who do you know? What's changing you? What drives your joy in the midst of the chaos at work? What is it? It's Christ. He changes me from the inside, and it begins to be exposed and manifested on the outside. Growth is gradual. It takes time, but it is inevitable. And the last thing I want you to notice is this. It is the fruit, not of your effort. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So at the beginning, what did I tell you? I told you that the goal of the Christian life is progress, not perfection. I Meaning the goal of my daily living is not to bat a 1,000. I'm happy if I'm batting 100 sometimes. I just want to see God change me. And that's the work of the Spirit, to to move you from where you are to where he wants you to be. As you just surrender and say yes, he points to an area in your life. Are you listening? Are you believing that he's directing and speaking into your life? And as he does, is there a desire to yield and say, God, yes, that part. Yes, that part. I'll give that to you. I'll start treating my wife in this way. Because you want it. And all of a sudden, the people around me are blessed by the horn of plenty that is full of the fruit of the spirit and they're saying that's god and you're saying that is definitely not me and they're saying i know i know <laughs> that's god folks what i've called you to this morning is nothing extraordinary it's simple but it's life changing it's hopeful For my nephew and his new bride, Angelica, it was a beautiful day. And they made promises that they will break. They kind of went over the top and wrote their own vows. I was sitting there thinking, whoa. (laughs) To this we do not say, I will. To this we say, so help me, God. May God help us. To confess our weakness, our sinfulness, our yielding to the battle. And may he teach us to be led by, to walk in, and to live by the Spirit. To surrender as he begins to plead and begins to work. And Remember that this work is the work of Christ. Verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. They are in the process of doing this repeatedly. It's evidence of their conversion, of the change that God is giving in their life. You belong to Him. Remember that progress in character begins with surrender, with yielding. That's what verse 25 says. So I say, live by the Spirit. Here's the struggle. Here's the battle. Here's the portraits. So live by the Spirit and be that portrait that everybody is longing to see and they don't even know that what they need to see is a Christian who has been utterly transformed by the work of the Spirit. And when they see it, They'll see what they're longing to be by the spirit and power of God. And hopefully God will bring them to an end of themselves where they can say, I am a sinner. I would love to be like that, but there is no hope. Not in my flesh. May the spirit of God break through, open the heart, convict of sin, show weakness, bring power, strength, change, transformation by the power of the gospel of Christ. That's why Paul was so strong in what he says three times in Galatians. He hates that which seeks to exalt self through self-effort. It's by the Spirit. The change comes that the beautiful portrait emerges. Last thought is this. Progress can incite pride. The last verse. It's interesting. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Don't look around. Thinking that you're better than others, listen to this. Don't look around thinking you're better than others, even if you are. And I mean that just how I said it. That was not a mistake. Don't think of yourself as better than others, even when you are. Because all of that work, and Rita, this goes to the question, Rita Sosnovic, this goes to the question you asked me the first week. How do our efforts play in? Right? Right? Any fruit emerging in my life is God. See, my salvation is of God. And my progress in Christ is of God. It's not about effort. It's about surrender and yielding to a God who can transform and make your life beautiful. We're going to go to the Lord's table this morning. Our hope as Christians is found in a Savior who through his blood and righteousness transforms our lives. When we come to the end of our sinful selves and we cry out to God and say, God, I am the first portrait without Christ. That's me. And I can become the second portrait through the cross by which you deliver and then unleash your grace and transform. So if you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ and you you may have to say this morning, okay, okay, I have not been Yielding. I can think of specific areas in my life where the Spirit of God has been prompting and probing and working, and I have said no. You know what this table's here for? It's to cause you to think, can I say that as I look at the sacrifice Christ made to change me? Can I do that? Here's what I believe if you're a Christian, <laughs> no. This is meant to break me. This is meant to produce in me a gratitude that causes me to surrender everything to God because of what he's done for me. We love him, the Bible says, because he first loved us. So let the power of the cross and the grace of the cross that we sung about this morning and that we will now remember, let it break you and change you. If you've never trusted Christ and you can't celebrate this in this kind of a way, in a life-changing Eternity-altering, saving way. Let it pass. It's a sham. It's not true for me. But if you know Christ, eat with thanksgiving in remembrance of what he has done and what he is doing daily by his personal spirit in your life. And do it with gratitude and kill all pride as you kneel before the cross this morning. Father, as we come to your table, how we come... uh, Weak people, some of us conflicted in our hearts needing to know that the one who died on the cross can forgive me right now as I confess and own my sin and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup and declare the cross work of Christ as my hope. Oh God, do that in me today. And Lord, as we Meditate, help us to listen to the Spirit. If there's an area, God, that you want to prompt us on and bring to our mind in our sphere of relationships, which which I think this text is primarily about, Lord, speak to us. Help us to confess and say, I'm going to go do that and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. proclaiming Christ. Bless the service in Jesus' name.